Chapter 28, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Job writes or says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. He breaks open a shaft away from people. In places forgotten by feet, they hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, from it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. That path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks. And his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden He brings forth to light. In chapter 26, Job spoke of God's power. In chapter 27, Job questioned God's power. Now in chapter 28, Job seeks God's wisdom. Job wants to know where true wisdom comes from. As a matter of fact, in verse 12, he'll say, where shall wisdom be found? There's a a second question that he asks in verse 20, where he says, from where then does wisdom come? Or the NIV puts it, where does wisdom dwell? Real pain, constant pain, uninterrupted suffering. If you've ever experienced that kind of constant, continual pain, it will make you tired of cliches and platitudes. In this portion of Job's speech, we discover that wherever else wisdom is found, you can't mine it. Like the precious ore of the earth in verses 1 through 11. You cannot go to the wisdom super mall. You can't go to Kohl's and go to the wisdom aisle and purchase it. It would appear that true wisdom has as its source the one true living self-existent God. In this chapter, Job puts on fresh garments. He wears the robes of a poet and a philosopher and a prophet. In verse 1 he says, surely there's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Job reminds us that human beings have found amazing ways to extract precious metals from from the earth. And, And the point that he's making is, People will go to extraordinary efforts to get something that they think is valuable. 
If you think gold is valuable or silver is valuable, you'll go to extraordinary efforts to get money or to get wealth. He talks about iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. So we get a tiny peek, just a little window into mining practices over 3,000 years ago. And scholars are divided over the beginning of mining and smelting. But again, if Job dates to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we know that people have been able to separate metals from ores for a very long time. And by the way, when you get to, and I have to stop saying by the way, so instead of saying by the way, I'm going to say BTW. So if I say BTW, you know what I mean. BTW, the Iron Age, according to most scholars, begins about 1400 BC. But again, we know that metallurgy has long been practiced. So he he writes, man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. They'll go to extraordinary lengths to mine, to dig. To haul away the ore. When something is really, really valuable, you want to have it. And so the the expression in in verse 3, searches every recess, literally in the Hebrew language means to continually probe. To constantly probe. In verse 4, he breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. They hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. So the idea is that the search for riches will take human beings to remote places. When I was a kid growing up in the Mojave Desert, people would go to Death Valley. They're going to go into unbelievably remote places. If they think something is valuable there, if they think that there's silver there, if they think that there's gold there, they'll drop everything. They'll go to remote places and unexplored places in order to find that which is valuable. Verse 5, as for the earth, from it comes bread. The idea being the earth produces precious ore. It produces grain so that you can eat But underneath it, it's turned up as by fire. Job understands that if you dig a hole in the ground and you keep going further and further into the ground, it gets hotter and hotter the further you go down into the ground. In verse 6 it says, its stones are the source of sapphires. The word sapphire is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. Probably doesn't mean sapphires as you and I think about the stone or or the gem. Probably this is a word for lapis lazuli. And I don't know if you know what lapis lazuli is, but it's a beautiful blue, vibrant stone that in the ancient world, they would take it and they would cut it in order to make gems and jewelry. Again, a picture of that which is valuable. That path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. The idea being people go where animals don't go, birds don't fly, lions don't tread. We've never seen a bird or a lion wearing a miner's cap 
or a lab coat. Well, maybe you have, but I haven't. He puts his hand to flint. He's speaking of technology. For those of you who are even remotely interested in the ancient world, they were very limited in their technology. So they would form tools from flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. They begin to dig at the very base of the mountains, looking deep, deep inside. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden he brings forth to light. The reason why he's damming up the streams from trickling is because he's trying to hold back the water because he's looking in the rivers for gold and silver. In all of these things, Job is making reference. Here's what all of it has in common. Job is making reference to human skill. He's paying tribute to human ingenuity. And why is he doing that? You'll remember that earlier in the passage, Job's friends, one of them in particular, likened human beings to maggots. Job has a little bit higher view of humanity. Is human beings, are human beings completely without any virtue? Well, the answer is, that's not true. The answer is no. There's lots of virtues. And so, from verse 3 to verse 11, he talks about the virtue of intellect. Puts an end to darkness in verse 3. Persistence searches every recess. Curiosity explores the unknown. Vision sees better than a falcon. Courage acts more fiercely than a lion in verse 8. Inventiveness makes tools out of flint in verse 9. Industry levels mountains, cuts rock in verses 9 and 10. Discernment perceives that which is precious. Creativity provides alternatives. Insight brings things to light. And again, McKenna writes, quote, Bildad makes man a grub. In the rotting carcass of the earth, Job exalts him as a mind and a spirit created in the image of God. Human beings have value. They have worth. The Bible says that we're created by God. We are created in the image of God. In what sense? In the sense that we have a mind and a spirit, the ability to communicate, the ability to form friendships and relationships. And so when Job talks about human beings develop mining in verses 1 through 8, tool making in verse 9, earth moving in verse 10, conservation in verse 11, you know what you're looking at? Job is talking about the very beginnings of human technology. And again, McKenna rightly points out Job's insight provides us a way to think about today's advanced technology. When you think about all of the things that we live with right now, 
worldwide communication, cancer research, oceanography, laser technology, space exploration, microchip circuitry, urban development, organic transplants, solar power. Each one of those things are rooted and grounded in intellect that puts an end to darkness, persistence that searches every recess, curiosity that explores the unknown, vision that sees better than a falcon, courage greater than a lion, inventiveness that creates new tools, industry that reshapes the environment, discernment to be able to tell that which is precious, and then creativity that gives us the opportunity to think about choices and alternatives. We can discover things. The reason why Job is bringing this up, he's going, human beings are fascinating creatures capable of all kinds of interesting things. But here's the point in part. Can the mind of man and even the genius of man and the creativity of man discover the mind of God or the will of God or the things of God? Can human beings on their own Have wisdom from God? The answer is no. We can discover a whole lot of things. But what can you discover about the mind of God and the will of God and the wisdom of God apart from the revelation of God? And this is, this is crazy, but I'm going to say it. This is why we come here. This is why we open up our Bible. This is why we have Bible study. It isn't to fulfill some sort of religious obligation. It's so that you can know the mind of God and the heart of God and the will of God. That's part of the point. Why is it that people cannot find wisdom? Job's answer in part is you cannot find what you don't think is important. Or what you don't value. Again, we live in a world. Do people in our world value gold and silver? They, they really do. I think gold is up to $1,300 an ounce. I think silver is hovering right around $19 or $20 an ounce. But if you take an ounce of gold, could you find a place to get rid of it in India, China, Central and South America. Is it pretty much considered money everywhere you go? For the most part it is. Part of the point that he's saying is. People will find. They will embrace. They will pursue. What they find valuable. Job is saying in part. That the reason why people can't find the wisdom of God is because they're not really looking at it. Even though the wisdom of God far exceeds gold and silver. There's a wisdom that God has placed in the very fabric of creation that we're going to learn about in verses 21 through 27. That's revealed in humanity in verse 28. But in the very world, the fabric of the world in which we live in. As you look up in the sky, as you walk on the earth, as you look at your environment. God has revealed himself in so many remarkable ways. So he asks the question, 
I call this shopping for wisdom. Verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Thousands of years and thousands of advancements haven't changed the question. The genius of man still cannot discover a particular kind of wisdom. Now remember what Job has already said. Are human beings capable of creativity, even artistic expression? The answer is yes. Someone said, we know more and more about less and less And pretty soon we're going to know everything about nothing. Nuclear energy dramatically illustrates this point. Did you know that in the 1930s scientists predicted that there was a particle. An invisible, indivisible particle called the atom. Now remember, remember... The word atom is a word that we used in our, in our language to describe a particle that we thought was the smallest indivisible particle. And so scientists in the 30s thought the atom could never be split. Albert Einstein later quipped that if he had known the consequences of his work, he would have become a plumber. Because he understood that even though you can split the atom and you can release nuclear energy, does wisdom always keep up with technology? The answer seems to be no. So Job writes, man does not know its value. That means wisdom. Nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me, speaking of the oceans. The sea says, or the deep, speaking of the earth. The sea says, it's not in me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, a place that was known for gold deposits, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Here's part of the point. As you look at verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, every single verse... In verse 13 through 19 contains at least once, sometimes twice, the word not. The emphasis is on the absence of wisdom. I'm going to suggest to you that Job is even emphasizing the absence of the desire for wisdom. They don't want it. They don't desire it. In verse 12 when he says where is wisdom. It receives an emphatic answer. It's nowhere in the land of the living. It's nowhere in the sky. It's nowhere in the dirt. It's nowhere in the ocean. It's not in the land of the living. It's it's difficult to recover it even from the land of the dead. Job notes Wisdom cannot be brought to market. It can't be purchased. It can't be weighed. It can't be valued. It can't be equaled. It can't be exchanged. It can't be bought in verses 15 through 19. 
But again, there's a little insight that's given to all of the things in the ancient world that people thought was valuable. I've done an independent study to discover some of the properties of money or wealth. And in the ancient world, money, in order to be money, had to be divisible. You had to be able to section it out. It had to be portable. That means you had to be able to carry it. It had to be durable. So it had to last. It had to be recognizable. People had to be able to look at it and say, that's valuable. And then it had to be scarce in relationship to volume and weight. Hence, valuable, divisible, portable, durable, recognizable, valuable. And so Job says, wisdom isn't something that most people trade in or negotiate. In verses 20 through 27, We're going to read it quickly, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what we're reading. Job says, From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? He's playing the part of the philosopher. Where does wisdom come from? If it's not in the sky, if it's not in the earth, if it's not in the ground, where does it come from? And where's the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we've heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Job answers the question. Where is wisdom? Job concludes that only God knows the place of true wisdom and knows the place of true understanding. It was Francis Schaeffer who would coin a term. He would talk about not just truth. He would talk about true truth. Something that is substantially real, certain. I've told you on more than one occasion Mortimer Adler wrote that truth, in order to be true, has to have two important attributes. It has to be immutable. That means not subject to change. It has to be incorrigible. That means not subject to perfection. Something that is really, really true is not subject to change. It is not subject to perfection. When I was thinking about this, what then is true? What is really true? It never changes. You never add more information to it to make it more true. I discovered there's four things that are 
undeniably, irrevocably, substantially, permanently true. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do you suppose the fourth thing is? Everything they say and do. Because is the Father subject to change? Subject to perfection? Is the Son subject to change or perfection? Is the Holy Spirit subject to change or perfection? When God declares something to be true, is it true forever? That is where we're going with it. No wonder so many Bible teachers contrast the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God because that's exactly what the Bible does. You see, the Bible is suggesting, not just suggesting, but telling us that there's a certain kind of wisdom that human beings have. The Bible isn't suggesting that there's no wisdom whatsoever, but that the wisdom of God is so far beyond the wisdom of human beings. Human beings far exceed animals in knowing about precious metals in verse 1, the source of gems in verse 6. But what he's going to tell us is that God, God is the ultimate source of wisdom in verses 27 and 28. And so when you read verses 27 and 28, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. And he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Does that phrase sound familiar familiar to anyone? It should. Because it's found in Psalm 111, verse 10 Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, it says, Happy is he who has found wisdom, he who has acquired understanding. For wisdom is more profitable than silver. And the gain she brings is better than gold. She is more precious than red coral. And none of your jewels can compare with her. In her right hand is long life. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant. Her paths all lead to prosperity. She is a tree of life to those who grasp her. And those who hold fast to her are safe. McKenna writes, and I quote, this is something really important. That's why I'm quoting it. He writes, Having exhausted the witness of the natural and the preternatural worlds, Job turns to God, who understands the way of wisdom and knows the place of understanding in verse 23. But how? How does God know wisdom? Job develops a significant parallel between the science of man, which advances technology, and the science of God, which discovers wisdom. The scientific method is a discipline of discovery. In human knowledge, it follows these steps. Listen, number one, observe the facts. Number two, define the problem. Number three, 
Test the alternatives. Number four, analyze the evidence. Number five, report the results. Number six, apply the principles. Job says that God follows a similar discipline in the discovery of wisdom. He, verse 1, looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under heaven in verse 24. So number one, he looks to the ends of the earth. He sees under all the heavens, that's verse 24. Number two, he establishes a weight for the wind, verse 25. Number four, he sets a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt in verse 26. Number five, he declares the discovery of wisdom that he has seen, that he has prepared, that he has explored in verse 27. And then he applies his finding to man by saying, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from it is understanding, verse 28, unquote. So how... How does this apply? How are we to think about it? For those of you who have been following along in our study in Job, go all the way back, all the way back to the opening chapter. If you go to chapter 1, and you read in verse 8, do you remember? I'm going to read it to you. Listen carefully. Job chapter 1, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? What's God's description of Job? He fears God. He shuns evil. Question. Does God consider Job to be wise? That's the right answer. Question. Do Job's friends think he is wise? The answer is no. God says he's wise. His friends says say that he's not. Job's friends have accused him of a conspicuous lack of wisdom. Just like your friends. Your friends will say, tell me again what it is that you believe. I believe that the Bible's true and that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hey, what are you going to do on Sunday? Hey, it's Resurrection Sunday. I'm going to church. What are you doing? I'm going to the great smoke-in, man, downtown. As you know, pot has been totally legalized. But I want you to just think about this for just a minute. The note in my Ryrie Bible for verse 28 reads, True wisdom is fearing, showing holy respect and reverence for God and shunning evil. Wearsby writes, quote, Speaking of wisdom, it is a loving, or the fear of the Lord. Speaking of the fear of the Lord, it is a loving reverence for God, who he is, 
what he says, what he does. It's not a fear that paralyzes, but rather that energizes. When you fear the Lord, you obey his commandments. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. You walk in his ways. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. You serve him. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. You're loyal to him and you give him wholehearted service. Second Chronicles 10, 9. Like Job, when you fear the Lord, you depart from evil. Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8. The fear of the Lord is the fear that conquers fear. Psalm 112. For if you fear God, you won't fear anyone else. Matthew chapter 10 verses 26 through 31 unquote. In, in, in Wearsby's quote, he talks about a loving reverence for what he is, what he says, what he does. We human beings are funny creatures. We imagine a kind of wisdom that exists apart from reverence for God. Apart from a respectful attitude towards God. Apart from the revelation of God. Apart from the Son of God. Apart from the Word of God. But remember what Job is reminding you of. That real wisdom. True wisdom. The kind of wisdom that cannot be bought and sold in the marketplace of human Ideas and opinions is found in the person of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes, quote, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. There is no fool as great as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Unquote. It's not very helpful if you know a whole lot about a whole lot, but then you refuse to apply what it is that you know. Some of you have a smartphone, and if you have a smartphone, you're holding in your hands more information that's contained in the Library of Congress and the ancient, ancient Library of Alexandria. You have access to unbelievable information. More than anyone has ever had access before, ever. And you play Angry Birds. (laughs) You can do anything. You can know anything. You could have access to so much. In Proverbs 11.2, it says, there are barriers to true wisdom. It says, quote, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble... Is wisdom. Why do so many smart people reject God? The Bible says it's because of pride. The Bible says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, says, God was wise and decided not to let the people of this world use their wisdom to learn about him. Instead, God just chose to save only those who believe the foolish message that we preach. This is Paul's way of saying, how is it? That God 
would allow so many really, 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 really smart people to look at the Bible and laugh or hear the gospel and laugh or hear the revelation of God and laugh. And the foolish message that Paul is speaking of is the gospel. The gospel. The solution to the problem of sin. The good news, the gospel of how God has shown up in time and space and in the person of Jesus and that he died on the cross for our sin and that he rose from the dead for our justification. So what is Job saying? We human beings can't find true wisdom for the most part because we're not looking for it. Job is saying we human beings can't find true wisdom apart from God. We human beings can't buy wisdom apart from God. Our genius cannot discover wisdom. Our rich, read resources, cannot buy wisdom. God alone is the source and the savior. And so the beginning of wisdom requires the recognition of that source. We have to be able to ask God to be our portion. We have to be able to ask him to be our supply. And when the Lord told Solomon, tell me what it is that you want. Tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. Can you imagine if the Lord showed up and said, tell me, tell me what is it that you want. Name your terms. You name it. Think as high as you can. Not like, you know, the genie in the bottle where you have three wishes and you go, okay, my first wish is unlimited wishes. And you go, no, no, that's not part of the deal. You just have, you can get anything that you want from God. And Solomon can ask for long life. He can ask for victory over his enemies. He can ask for unlimited health or unlimited wealth or long life. He can ask for anything, anything, anything that he wants. And Solomon said in 1 Kings 3.9, Give me an understanding mind so that I can govern your people well. And so that I'll know the difference between right and and wrong, for who by himself is able to govern this great nation of yours, unquote. We ask God for wisdom, it says in James chapter 1, verse 5. Solomon asks for wisdom, but then he asks for discernment. Discernment is the ability to know the difference between right and wrong. Solomon doesn't ask for God to do his job for him. He asks for the tools, the mental and the emotional tools that are going to be necessary for him to accomplish what it is that he would have God do through him. Wisdom is thinking and living as God designed us to live. Wisdom is the ability to apply the knowledge to everyday life. We become wise when we study and then apply God's word. And then the wisdom of God offers in his word a practical ability to then apply it to the very, very real world in which you live. 
Wisdom is being able to pray a prayer that goes, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? And then the Bible reveals what it is that he wants you to do. He's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility with your God. The Bible says, ask of me and I'll give you the information. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that you don't put tomatoes in a fruit salad. There's lots of things that you can know. The foundation of knowledge is to fear the Lord, to honor him, to respect him. Now this becomes so very, very important because if human beings pursue knowledge apart from respect for understanding of, commitment to, a true and living God, then on what basis do human beings determine what is right and what is wrong? Many human beings make that determination based on what's right for me, what's useful for me. But the Bible says that the foundation of knowledge Honoring, respecting God is to live in awe of his power, to obey his word, to place your confidence in Jesus. That becomes the controlling principle that informs your understanding of the world, that informs your attitude, that informs your relationships, that informs your actions. And if that's not what informs your attitude and your actions, then you will be misinformed. Solomon said, how wonderful to be wise, to be able to analyze and interpret things. Wisdom lights up a person's face, softening its hardness, he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 1. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective. This is the kind of wisdom that Job is talking about. The reason why this becomes such an important point, I I want you to think about this just for a moment. As Job is asking these things, and as he's answering them, and as he's speaking about them, does he still have his answer about suffering? Is he still covered with boils? Is he still in the trash heap? He doesn't have the answer to the question of why am I suffering and why am I in the position that I'm in. But he does begin to understand that if he's ever going to get an answer, it's going to have to be found in the wisdom of God. We become wise when we become 
like Jesus. That's what Paul means in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of his Son. Wisdom comes. Wisdom comes as you have the mind of Christ and the compassionate heart of Christ. And you begin to see the world and envision the world and evaluate the world on the basis of Jesus' perspective. No wonder... Jesus was filled with wisdom. He walked with his father. Jesus said, everything that the father has asked me to do, I do. No wonder James says again, if you need wisdom, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. And he will gladly tell you. He won't resent you asking. That's a paraphrase of James chapter 1 verse 5. We can ask for wisdom to guide our choices. But imagine when you ask for wisdom to guide your choice and the Lord says, respect me, honor me. By the way, BTY. Have you ever asked God for anything? Lord, I need your help. I need your guidance. I need to know if I should go here. I need to know if I should go there. I need to know if I should stay or if I should go. I need to know if I should marry that person. I need to know if I should take that job. I need to know if I should leave this job. I need to know, Lord, Lord, guide me, guide me, guide me in my friendship with this particular person or with this relationship. Help me, Lord. Help me understand what it is that you want from me. And can you imagine the Lord says, honor me, respect me. The moment that the Lord says, honor me and respect me, does that seem to impart and form the way that you go forward in the decision-making process? That means everything that's dishonoring to God is already excluded as an option. Job doesn't know the answer to the question of suffering. At the beginning of the book, We find God honoring Job and defending Job. God is honoring him and defending him, even though he still doesn't know the answer to his question. But he does know this. If there is an answer, it's going to be found in the true and the living God. And in the New Testament, we discover that Jesus is the source of goodness. And Jesus is the source of life. And Jesus is the source of wisdom. Job has begun his speech wondering about God's power, declaring it, questioning it, And now he wants to know the truth about wisdom. Of where it can be found. And how it can be found. And he's found it. In a revelation. Do you want to know the truth? You'll never know the truth about God. Unless you're willing to accept his revelation. Of himself. 
I often ask people, if somebody wants to know the truth about you, what's the best source? What is the best source about you? Is it you? I mean, if I have to choose between your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, the people who love you, the people who hate you, in order to get information about you, where's the best place to go to know the truth about you? Doesn't it make sense that the best place to go in order to know the truth about God is God himself? And so the Lord says, do you want to know about me? Do you want to understand my nature and my character? Do you remember what Jesus what was said in the New Testament? God from heaven speaks and he goes, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then Jesus says, learn from me. I'm meek and lowly and humble. Learn from me. This is why we do what we do. This is why we're studying this book. Now, chapter 29. No, that's for next week. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time. Lord, we're so grateful that you've given us permission to ask you for help, to ask you for wisdom, to ask you to help us think through things. And that, Lord, when we have difficult choices to make and hard decisions to make, that the greatest possibility that we're going to make the right decision, a helpful decision, a healthy decision is if we come to you and we ask you, Heavenly Father, will this honor you? Will it glorify you? Will it exalt your majesty? Will it make you happy? Will it honor you? Will it please you? Will it glorify you? Lord, we know that some of us really do need to cultivate a healthy respect for who you are. Holy, just, kind, merciful, gracious, tender, loving, and wise. Truly wise. And so, Lord, now unto the King eternal, immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And all the saints said, Amen. Okay, let's stand. Mm-hmm.